Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I welcome back Dan Wager. Dan is the VP Global Financial Crime Compliance and Payments at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Dan, first of all, thanks for taking the time to visit with me again. Tom, good to be here. Good to see you again. I'm really excited to take up this topic today with you of human trafficking and human slavery. It's something that obviously is a worldwide scourge, but more importantly, it's a bigger topic for compliance professionals. And it's something that they're generally aware of, maybe in the back of their head, but they're not really focused on it if they're an anti-corruption compliance professional, an anti-money laundering compliance professional, a trade sanction compliance professional. And I think they all, all compliance professionals need to understand not only the risk around this area, but also what the solutions are. So I wanted to just start off with in researching for this podcast, it seems that the actually the pandemic has caused an increase in this area because it's closed down other business opportunities for the bad guys, such as drug smuggling or other ways to move money from their ill-gotten gain. And it seemed that this was one of the areas that they are, are moving towards. And I wanted to start off by asking you, is that correct? And if so, what are some of the commercial corporations that are, are really now more at risk than perhaps they were this time last year? Absolutely, Tom. So just going back to your first point on the importance of this, it absolutely is worth reinforcing that on a human level, compliance professionals, financial crime professionals have a, obviously a, a real reason to be concerned about exploitation of humans through labor trafficking, servitude, human trafficking, human smuggling, sex trafficking, et cetera. The interesting thing is, from a functional perspective, these are crimes not of passion, but of but of financial importance, right? Their, their focus is to make money. And that desire does not stop during an economic crisis and a global pandemic. So you're, you're dead on, Tom. There's definitely been a change in the way money is moving, but it all comes back to money. It all comes back to moving money, repatriating proceeds, buying more supplies or humans. And the way they're doing it is definitely changing, and we need to be aware of it. Over the years, I've seen a few instances of companies falling into traps around uh, money laundering or other types of illegal activity unintentionally, but it drove me to really think that the bad guys look for the softest targets. So here we have the pandemic, and you articulated the, the changes that that has brought about, but in many ways, commercial corporations are are actually softer targets because they're not set up to fight this scourge. So with that, I was wondering, uh, what are some of the additional risks that you see commercial corporations having, both because they may be a softer target for human trafficking in their supply chain or that the pandemic has brought about? Yeah, but let's start right at the base there. Again, you know, the focus is on making money and moving money. In this time of restricted commerce, and as you pointed out earlier, you know, changes in the way of cross-border traffic, lower airline travel, fewer people moving across the border, far fewer goods moving by ship and by air cargo. This drives a significant change in the way people move narcotics, the way they move proceeds, the way they move smuggled people. And to your point, they're always going to look for softer or new ways to do that. 
interestingly, the, the pandemic, Tom, has brought banks into the center of this. And I think when you look at just the PPP program effects on banks, where they are placed at the center for the receipt and distribution, monitoring and reporting of suspicious activity related to stimulus funds, there's actually a very close connection to right back to narcotics, human trafficking, human smuggling. Let's just do an example, if we could. The shop that was a nail salon that employed a number of undocumented individuals in labor exploitative conditions who are being held in labor servitude or debt servitude, or you could interchange that for a massage parlor that really fronts for a prostitution operation, et cetera. They're under tremendous economic pressure because they can't operate openly in many jurisdictions, most of the country. So their overhead is humans. That's really tragic because the last thing they want to do is pay for the upkeep and support housing and maintenance of a whole bunch of people that aren't earning money. That brings me back to stimulus because by far the most significant or the vast majority of businesses that applied for stimulus funds were small and medium businesses. Understandably, they're suffering greatly. And this is where the professional launderers come in. It's borne out, Tom, what I'm about to tell you is borne out in charges that were brought in a case. If anyone wants to look it up, the case was brought in November by the Department of Justice in Houston, Texas. Multi-agency case, $16 million. Just look up $16 million PPP broad, and you will see what I'm about to talk about. And what it was, was the creation of false businesses, the utilization of check cashing companies to launder illicit proceeds, fraud proceeds in this case. But the same thing is happening out there right now with narcotics and human trafficking. And here's what happens. The business that is shut down, that has applied for a PPP loan, or maybe is hasn't yet, and is approached by an illicit financier to apply for a loan, applies for the loan. And remember, the loan is principally to go towards overhead, payment of paychecks, health benefits, et cetera. In fact, the early marker was 75% of that loan had to go to those things. Now, if you're running a business, a manufacturing line, if you're running a duck rendering factory in upstate New York that makes foie gras, and you've got 700 undocumented individuals who are not working because of health restrictions, you apply for that loan, you probably don't want to give them all the money, or maybe you want to find a way to maximize it. So in steps the launderer. The launderer steps in and takes advantage of your exploited workforce and your own disadvantage as a business owner and says, tell you what, I'm going to help you get a loan, and then I'm going to pay you cash for the loan. You're going to apply for it. You're going to get $3 million bucks, and I'm going to pay you three and a quarter million dollars. And the way that's going to work is I'm going to give you a big old truckload of cash, and you're going to give me a whole bunch of checks. And they're going to be made out to hundreds of individuals. And I'm going to take them to my check casher, and I'm going to cash them. I thereby launder my narcotics proceeds. The business owner retains money. If he wants to give money to his employees, he can still do it and feel quite good about it. And the beauty of it, Tom, is that he's actually just met the requirements to convert that from a loan to a grant under the PPP. So he converts it to a grant. He doesn't owe the government anything. The people probably don't get paid at all or get significantly underpaid. The narcotics guy has paid a little bit above his typical 10% commission to launder his funds. The check casher, and it happens every day, cashes tons of checks that are to fictitious individuals or that weren't to the individuals that, that are on the check. This happened. This is happening in cases. This Texas case involved the check casher cashing thousands of checks to fictitious employees of PPP businesses. Now, this brings us back to our market. In a few minutes, we can talk about how ways to detect that. But do you follow that these things move together, right? Disadvantaged businesses looking for funds and illicit financiers looking for outlets, people in the narcotics or human smuggling realms 
looking for ways to make money and retain money in a difficult environment, they all fit together. Let me move now from PPP to PPE, Mm -hmm. because we've got a couple of very public instances where companies either purchasing PPE found out that their purchase products were so substandard they were unusable because they hadn't done robust due diligence on the supplier because the supplier was brand new because there wasn't a market for this one year ago, or they found out that their supplier was engaging in human trafficking itself in terms of its treatment of its own workers. And I wanted to use that to explore really the reputational issues at play here, that there are many things that consuming public dislikes, but not much more than human trafficking and human slavery. And if your company is found to have really anywhere in a supply chain, that either of those, the public response is very quick and on social media, very voracious. And is that a message that your clients and customers understand that the, really the reputational risk can be as equal to any fine or penalty they might sustain? I think there's a broad understanding of it. What they're looking for is ways to detect it, Tom. That's the difficulty. Is it's a rapidly evolving environment. Let's take PPE and methyl alcohol as our examples there. There have been innumerable seizures of methyl alcohol-infused products, other harmful alcohols in sanitizer. During the the when there was a you know a, a tremendous lack of sanitizer available in the market, they filled it with illicit and harmful chemicals. Well, you can be sure they weren't helping and protecting the people that were making that product, and they certainly didn't care about the people it hurt. So we talk about reputational damage for passing it on. That's one issue. When I look down the list of PPE seizures in the last. I'm just going to read you a few. December, 600,000 worth of PPE. That was 100,000 counterfeit N95, 3M N95 masks in a Texas warehouse. 100,000 masks, N95 counterfeits seized in December 15th. There's 500,000 N95s, counterfeit N95 seized in Chicago in September. The list goes on and on. So let's just talk about that. The person that counterfeits the mask certainly isn't going to care about their workforce. They don't care about the health effects of having a non-functioning mask. There's the IPR angle, which is that you're taking money away from the company that actually is producing them to standard. This is just a a horrific knock-on effect, and you don't want to be the company that sources those from an asymmetrical or non-vetted supplier and then passes them out into the economy because you're going to go right along with them. You took a cheap route to buy a cheap product and sold it as the real thing. You're on the hook for a lot of damage reputationally, perhaps even from a torch perspective. So amazing how that is changing our environment. But every day, Tom, they are seizing counterfeit products in there. You have to understand that the the people that are affected by that, it's incredible. We used to take and seize, when I was a Department of Labor agent in the 90s, we used to bring cases against individuals that forced undocumented workers to go into places and rip asbestos out with nothing but paper masks on their faces. What do you think happens to those kind of workers when you have counterfeit and hard to get PPE in this kind of environment where they can't even travel across a border or seek other employment? It is exploitation and health dangers on an epic scale. And when the pandemic started, one of the biggest risks for every business was the move to work from home in in almost every area. And so I wanted to ask you a really a two-part question because now when we're recording this in uh, late January, what did work from home bring in terms of increased risk? But what does return to work bring in terms of increased risk? Because many companies are now struggling with 
whether to return to work, if so, how to return to work and what that's going to look like. So I was wondering if there might be kind of a bookends or each one of those topics brings up its own type of risk that must be managed separately. I mean, obviously, the remote work movement was accomplished quite quickly, given the the size of the task. I mean, imagine moving thousands of individuals in, a, in an average size company into a remote work scenario, setting them up on their networks and getting them laptops for appropriate work equipment. It definitely opens up new avenues for fraud. We've already seen it in the cases that have been charged. People are being social engineered in, in ways they could not have been before. I mean, most folks are working with their company equipment sitting alongside a non-company network computer. The two are right next to each other. You can be solicited for info on one or hit with malware on one, and the movement of the information to a non-company network is right there. There's also the imposter factor. The control of someone inside the network in a closed network is difficult enough. When you start opening up people onto VPNs on a more broad basis, you've got to start looking at digital attributes and asymmetry in their behaviors, meaning, do I have employees that are logging in near concurrently or simultaneously in Texas and in Eastern Europe? I mean, who's even had to monitor for that before on their VPNs? Very few companies are using the right security protocols to monitor the attributes and behaviors. Do I have one set of employees that you know acts like normal humans and all of a sudden I'm getting people that are pasting passwords on single sign-ons all over the place? That's a change in network activity and human behaviors that people should be watching for. So the controls for fraud and security have definitely had needed to go uh, go through a, a renovation here. It's still in progress, Tom. We're still seeing a lot of companies vulnerable. So as we think about the rest of this year, 2021, and I think many of us are coming to the realization we may be in a similar place this year because of the lack of, of vaccine availability, and we move to 2022, do you see some of the trends that you saw last year moving not only through this year, but also perhaps into the first half of this decade as well, Dan? No, oh, absolutely. We've we've created a permanent change to non-face-to-face interactions in so much of our commercial world that much of that won't change. People have become much more adept and comfortable with conducting loans and transfers at arm's length, not meeting in person, not even knowing the people. That's good in some ways. For commerce, it also opens up a lot of fraud. It will continue for a long time. People are buying goods remotely. They're also being defrauded remotely. You know, they're buying goods that don't exist. They're buying goods that don't get shipped. Traditional protections around that may not be adequate. And the channels, Tom, through which goods and people are moving permanently changing. I mean, people are buying goods through social networking platforms that that have never been used for commerce directly before. So there's a lot of new risk coming in. It's not going to go back to the way it was. But I, I did want to just, if I could, would it be okay, Tom, if I just highlighted a couple things that are sort of the red flags for compliance mm-hmm. professionals in a number of fraud areas? You bet. I love to give like concrete takeaways. And, I, and it, I'm fascinated that not much has changed with some of the frauds we discussed. In 25 years, people still do things a lot the same way. The frauds that are being outlined, if you're not reading the complaints on the PPP frauds and, and other stimulus frauds, read them because as it quickly spills from just PPP fraud into drug trafficking, human trafficking, other areas, money laundering, here's what to watch for. Let's just take a labor trafficking example. The person who is processing the meat that you buy for your dinner table likely works at some Midwest facility employing hundreds and hundreds of individuals that may have gone through a period of shutdowns or still may be shut down, all right, in some cases. What you as a financial professional at an institution or 
check casher or a credit union or others, or even at a corporate who's vetting supply chain, are you looking for signs of fraud? And I'll just give you a couple to think about. If you're processing PPP proceeds or watching paychecks go out, have they changed their behaviors? Was Did a company previously cash their check, give their checks to their employees, and they came in you know, through all different channels, different banks over time? Are you suddenly being presented with large batches of cross-endorsed or multiple endorsement checks? Are you, as a clearing bank for a check casher, seeing checks come in in bulk bearing the same endorsements or large numbers from the same companies? I'm just telling everyone, these PPP frauds that are occurring where workers are not getting paid, and that's another level of human exploitation, but the business is profiting, they are actually writing checks to convert them to grants. And that money doesn't go to the worker. They're doing it en masse. It's not sophisticated. You will see hundreds of checks in series with the same ink with only moderately varied signatures and endorsements on the back. That was proven in these most recently charged cases. So be on the lookout for changes in business behavior or things that don't match the way you would expect them to act if people were presenting checks. Because that person that's packing the meat and processing the the food may just be being exploited, underpaid, while the business owner takes your tax dollars and profits illicitly from it. You know, Dan, that red flag of a very dramatic change, it strikes me that that's a red flag from 50 years ago, 25 <laughs> years ago, yep. and it's still a red flag. And it's a, it's a red flag really in, in almost every area. If you have a dramatic change, is there a valid personal reason, a valid business reason, or un, just a valid reason? And, and that still that basic advice you just gave would really seem to be something that we should continue to tell to not just fraud risk professionals, but all compliance professionals as well. Is that too simplistic or do you feel like that's a message we can always talk about? Well, unfortunately, we can always talk about it because it just keeps coming around, Tom. It is ancient. It's decades old. But the bottom line is that let's just if a company is paying workers, those workers behave like, and they're not exploited. They're not held in debt servitude. They're not being exploited. They will take that money and do things like normal people would. They'll wire some, they'll deposit it 45 different local banks. But if suddenly in this day and age, you're seeing either an end to payroll or maybe a continuation of payroll, but the manner in which it transacts is completely changed, it's a red flag worth watching because underlying it might be laundering, fraud, and human exploitation. So the, the flags are still there, still worth emphasizing, and it's a good one to watch. Dan, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics you raise or indeed LexisNexis Risk Solutions, where could they go? Yeah, so if you just go to the web and go to LexisNexis Risk Solutions, we are part of the Relics Group of Companies, and we are focused specifically on solutions for corporates and financial regulated entities to solve their financial crime risk. And you can go to our website. There we have a variety of resources there white papers, discussion points. There's even some blogs on there you can look at for updates on this. And uh, we, we welcome folks to come take a look. And I would just reiterate what Dan said. Check out the site. It is a wealth of information, much of it available uh, at no charge. And if you are new to this area or if you're a longtime professional in this area, this is really the site and the service for you. Dan, always a pleasure to visit with you. And as we move into the rest of 2021 and beyond, I hope I could uh, perhaps ask you back to continue the conversation. I always enjoy talking to you, Tom. Thank you very much. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review. 